All right, praise God. You guys can grab a seat, church, all right? Um, real quick, before we get started, just a reminder kind of, of uh, children's ministry and how it works here at Parkview East. If you are new, we're so glad you're here. Um, we do things a little differently. Um, first of all, one of our, our hopes is that uh, starting next week, first week of October, our goal was to be able to provide something for kids at least through elementary school every week. And so if you've been coming here for the last couple of weeks, you will know we put out a call, we need more help. Um, and so the last two weeks we had volunteer training and it was such an encouragement to my heart to see that room filled two weeks in a row with you guys who are willing to step in and serve in children's ministry. So thank you so much for doing that. Um, we're really grateful for it. Um, that being said, um, the way we have historically done kids is that it's very common and regular for many children to be in here on a Sunday morning and we say, praise Jesus. It's okay, all right? So for your parents, you parents, if you're here and you have little ones with you, um, we know sometimes that can be a stressful time. We just want you to, to know that we are okay with noises that children make and sometimes disruption that kids can make. That's okay. So don't, don't let that stress you out, okay? Um, we're glad that they're here, all right? Um, as a church, we just started a couple weeks ago walking through the book of Genesis. And so if you have your Bibles, and I sure hope you do, I would invite you to take them out. Um, this morning we're going to spend our time together in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. All right, the title of this morning's message is The Rest of the Story. So I'm going to read it and I'll pray and we'll get started. This is Genesis 2, 1 through 3. The words won't be on the screen. You will be helped if you have a copy. If you don't, Ed has a Bible you can put in your hand. Genesis 2, 1 through 3. This is the word of the Lord. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Let's pray. Father God, we um, come before you this morning and um, we enter this room from all different kinds of places in life. And uh, right now, as we consider your word this morning, and we pray that these words um, would bring comfort to our oftentimes restless souls. Lord, we pray that these words would be like a balm which promotes healing for our souls and our lives, Lord. Um, we pray that your word would be clear, Lord, and I pray that you would um, speak it to your people now, and that you would write it on our hearts. We love you and we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. If you um, have ever been through Southern, well, let me think about this, South Dakota, North Dakota, South Dakota, South Dakota, on your way to, let's say, the Badlands or the Black Hills, um, you will no doubt, shortly after entering into South Dakota, you will see signs, they will be hard to miss, and they will be one after another, and they will simply say, Wall Drug. They will be promoting a store, a stop, that is hundreds of miles in the distance. And they will be promoting things such as, now brace yourselves, free ice water. Okay? Five cent coffee true story, and glorious things such as hot 
beef sandwiches, all right? Odds are, actually, in fact, you can see song, signs promoting wall drug all the way as I think there's even in Alaska songs that saying wall drug is so many miles away. Um, if you've never been that direction, I've never been that part of the world, um, wall drug is just a massive, massive sort of glorious gas station, restaurant, pit stop, rest stop, pharmacy, souvenir type of thing in the middle of nowhere, okay? So for all the folks that are going to the Black Hills or the Badlands, it is a welcome oasis. Places where you can, a place where you can get a hot meal, where you can, you can spend all the money that you have, if you so desire, or that your children think that you have. Um, it's, it's a great place. Um, we went there this summer, and um, as we were walking through Wall Drug, it's just this massive store. It kind of, the stores just kind of run into each other. It's like a big mall kind of deal. And as you walk from one store to the next, there's just people absolutely everywhere, um, everywhere. And, and the stores are hard to sometimes find a seat. There's a line for virtually everything that you go into. You have to wait in line. There's just people everywhere. And as we're walking through Wall Drug, seeing the different shops and stores to go into, there is one, one storefront that stands out among all the other rooms at Wall Drug. This storefront, it's, it's not a store, in fact. Actually, it's, it's, it's a room that was made, and it is made um, to reflect uh, the uh, New Melry Abbey, a monastery in Dubuque, Iowa. And so it was a welcome surprise. Being from Dubuque, I saw this place. I had heard about it and was kind of looking for it. You can put it up there, Dominic. But um, it is an exact replica of the monastery. Okay, it's gorgeous, really small, super narrow, just a, you know, you can see kind of a pulpit in front, there's a cross up there. Um, the, if you've ever been to the New Maori Abbey in Dubuque, you would see it looks a lot like that, okay? Now, you, you notice that my kids, as I was standing in the back taking a picture, what you notice, it's so striking about this place, is aside from my children, there's nobody in there, right? There's nobody in there. Every other store is just slammed with people, but there was nobody in the monastery, Nobody there. Our kids were just do what they do at church. They just saw a church and they started running around in it, you know, like children do, like my children do. Um, but it's so interesting when you consider the, the location of this chapel in the midst of the busyness and the commotion, right, and the, the, the consumption that is wall drug. It stands in stark, stark contrast. It really does. It stands out. Why is this place here? The person who put it there did it for a reason. They did it for exactly that reason, right? They wanted to provide a place where people could come when you experience the glories of God's creation, the Badlands, the, the Black Hills, these marvelous, spectacular things that God made. He wanted to provide a place in the midst of all the tourism and the commotion for people to reflect, to be still, and to be quiet. Again, I will direct you to the image. Put that image back up there. And I want you to notice, I want you to notice how many people are sitting in the pews doing just that. None of them. None of them. Because the truth is, folks, we live in a world that tells us life is actually defined by productivity, by activity, by going and by doing. Right? And the challenge we have as a Christian people, as a people who have been marked and who have been shaped, who have been saved by the gospel, is that we are called to be a people of rest. A people who understand and who embrace the moments where we intentionally slow down 
and dedicate time to reflection and to devotion, worship of God himself. And so this morning, as we consider our text before us, Genesis 2, 1 through 3, it's really the big idea that as a Christian people, we are to, to be a people of rest. We're to be a people of rest. It's really the big idea of Genesis 2. big idea is that God is a God of rest, and therefore we should be a people of rest. Genesis 2, uh, one, sorry, Genesis 1 through Genesis 2, 3 serves as sort of the prologue of the entire biblical story. It's a unit of itself, and it's, it's absolutely essential in wrapping our minds around what this book is saying to understand what God is doing in Genesis 1 through Genesis 2, 3. It's a great place if you're new here and you don't, maybe this is your first time reading the Bible, maybe you're new to, to the, the biblical story, it is a fantastic place to start. Imagine that, the beginning. Um, unfortunately, it can oftentimes people can redir- be, be, be redirected to start in other places. This is a great place to start. So if you're exploring, you, you came at a great time. Oftentimes we can read the book of Genesis. One of the traps, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, is we can read the book of Genesis, especially Genesis 1 through 2, 3, and we can read it asking sort of the wrong questions. We can treat it like a textbook, maybe like a science textbook. And we come into Genesis chapter 1, the creation narrative at the very beginning, and we want it to answer all of our how questions. How did God do this? Right? What we, what we learned the first week is that it's not really the, the main point of the, question, of, the, of the narrative isn't so much how. We learned a little bit about how he made the world. But the main question that, we sh- that should come flying off the pages and smack us in the face is the who of creation. Genesis 1 is all about the who. That God is at the absolute center of this story. Before us this morning, we, we learn a little bit about the who, but the primary focus for this this morning is more, more along the lines of the why. Right? So it's not a textbook, but it's going to give us, the, it's going to answer for us, shed light on some of the deepest, most fundamental questions in life that we find ourselves, that, that humanity has been asking all through history. Why? What is the point of it all? What is the point of it all? Like I said before, the, the big idea is that we are a people of rest. Okay? We are a people of rest. And this reality shows us, gets to the very heart of that question. Why are we here? The question we've been asking for ages. And as we answer that question, what we discover is that we are a people of rest. Sheds an incredible amount of light on that question, why? So to, to, to help us with this, um, we've got three points. The, the first point is, I want to show you the priority of rest. The priority of rest. In these first verses, we see four emphases that together point to the priority of rest. The priority of rest. The first word to help you sort of understand these emphases, the first word I'm going to use, and I think they'll be up there, Dominic, I apologize, I did not. He's got it. All right, he's with me. First word is completion. So to understand what's happening here, first thing I want to draw your, 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 your mind to is this word completion. Okay? We see in verses 1, in verses 2, and in verses 3, four times in these three brief verses, God's work in creation is completed. Just read it real quick. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. In just three verses, that phrase, the work that he had done, really appears three times. The emphasis is that his work on cre- in creation was completed. 
Okay, So the emphasis is completion, not necessarily cessation of work. He doesn't stop working altogether. Now, because the language he used here is rest, and because rest best translates the word Sabbath, Sabbath, and because God's people have historically misunderstood the concept of Sabbath today, just as the Pharisees did in Jesus' day, oftentimes we miss the point. We have this image of an exhausted God working hard for six days straight, full of creative labor and ingenuity. And the seventh day finally comes, and God is just exhausted. He's completely gassed and decides to take sort of a cosmic nap, if you will. Many of you, that sounds pretty tempting right now, right? Some of you are even participating in that nap, I've noticed. Um, It sounds pretty good, right? God was busy. He was working six days straight. He needs a break. Sit back, right? Kick up your feet. Take a nap. Problem with that is that God doesn't get tired, right? He's not limited in the way that you and I are limited, right? God finishes the work of creation. It is complete. And he sets to the work of enjoying that which he made. Jesus understands this in John 5, 17, as he was one of the biggest things that Jesus often um, received confrontation and conflict from um, the religious of the day was the fact that he was ministering, he was healing, he was performing miracles on the Sabbath day. And this was an opportunity for the Pharisees to catch him and to say, listen, you are out of bounds here, right? He understands this in John 5, 17. He says, my father is working until now and I am working God never stopped working. He is at work today sustaining and enjoying his completed creation. Completion. Second, I want you to notice this word, uh, condition. Condition. What is the condition of his creation? When reading the creation account, you can't help but notice another thing. What's awesome about the way that this is structured um, is that there's the, the repetition and just the pattern that the way that the passage is structured brings these emphases out, okay? So you notice the pattern in six days. Day one, light, he made it, it was good. Day two, separated the waters above and below, response, it was good. Day three, he put plants and vegetation in the ground, response, good. Sun, moon, stars on the fourth day, they were good. Living creatures filling the sky and the water, guess what? It was good as well. On the sixth day, he takes animals, covers the land with them, male and female, makes them in their image, Guess what? You got it. It was good. Okay? Day six. All six days, it was good. Finally, in verse 31, we learn that everything that God made was good. Seven times we understand that his creation is good. He declares it good seven times. Now, for many of you may, may know that seven is a special number in Hebrew literature. It is a, a number that is representative of perfection. Seven times it is good. It is good. Seven times. And in fact, every time it is mentioned here that, uh, every time that uh, here in our text this morning is mentioned, seventh, the seventh day is mentioned, it's actually constructed of seven days in the Hebrew. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, okay? I don't uh, claim to be one. But every time the seventh day is mentioned in our text this morning, it is beautifully constructed of seven words in the Hebrew language. The point is that God's world, when he made it in creation, was good. It was perfect. It was exceptional. 
Therefore, the task that God sets him to on the, himself to on the seventh day is the total enjoyment and the total delight of the world that he perfectly made. So the condition is it was good. Third, I want you to think of the, this word claim. Claim. The seventh day is unique for a variety of reasons in the creation narrative. Not only is it unique because it doesn't involve any creative activity, it's also uniquely claimed by God. And the way that the other days are not claimed by God. In verse 3, we are told that God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. For God to make something holy is for him to set it apart and essentially declare it is mine. It belongs to me. When I was growing up, my dad had a special chair in our living room. It wasn't really all that special now that I think about it, but what made it special was that everybody that entered that house after 4.30 when he got off work knew exactly whose chair that was, all right? Because it's where my dad sat after a long day's work to take a rest. Everybody in the house knew. You could sit as long as my dad's not sitting in that chair it's fair game. Enjoy yourself. But if my dad walks in the room, everybody understands. All right, I better, better rise up and go over to the couch. Or maybe I need to sit on the floor, right? Right? Because that chair was special to him. He declared it as belonging to him. It was set apart. It was my dad's chair. God does the same thing with the seventh day. He declares it. He, he declares it holy. It belongs to him. But he also blesses it. In my dad's house, the chair was special to him. Why? Because he liked it. He liked the way it felt. He liked the way it rocked. He liked the way it reclined. He enjoyed sitting in that chair. Likewise, God blesses the seventh day because it is a day that he has shown tremendous favor to because it's a day that he delights in. So he, he blesses it. God does not declare his possession or his blessing of any other day other than the seventh day. This day, God says, belongs to me. Don't get it twisted. It's his. Oftentimes, I think we can think of Sabbath. When we think of this concept of Sabbath, we think of things such as, as maybe leisure or vacation, Right? How often when you think of the concept of Sabbath do you think of devotion and worship? It's a day that God sets apart for himself. Okay? Fourthly, the word is continuation. So we have completion, condition, claim, and continuation. There's a pattern of days from 1 to 6. There was evening and there was morning. You would notice this if you just read through the narrative again. At the end of each day, at the end of each phrase, it says that there was, there was evening and there was morning. What's different here, what's unique about the seventh day is that there's no indication that there was any evening or that there was any morning. There's no, essentially what it's saying here is that there is no eighth day. Okay? There's no eighth day. It suggests to the reader that the Sabbath rest of God exists as if it were an eternal state. It continues, a day that continues throughout eternity. Derek Kidner, the Old Testament scholar, says this, the formula that rounded off each of the six days is noticeably absent when we come to the seventh day. It's as if to imply the infinite perspective of God's rest. Infinite perspective of God's rest. Folks, I think as you read through this narrative and you are reminded day, day after day after day of the, the, the creation that God spoke into existence, right? All of the things that he, he made, right? It could be said that he, he made all that mattered, 
Okay? All of that he made those six days was, was matter. On the seventh day, he places it at the end of the week to remind us that matter is not all that matters. Okay? Which is exactly what our hearts need to hear. Because the culture honestly tells us the completely opposite. So these four emphases in Genesis 2, 1 through 3 support the notion that there is a purpose which transcends all of matter, all of creation. Six days of labor and creative work and activity of forming and filling, it all had a purpose, right? This is inherent of the purpose. This, this inherent purpose of creation is an offense to the theories which promote the random pointlessness of our universe, the Christian understanding right here at the very beginning of the story declares unmistakably that there is a point. That those six days had a reason. There is a purpose that undergirds all of creation. God made this universe for his eternal enjoyment. An enjoyment that we can only know when we enter into his presence, enter into his rest. Now the question I would ask for us, and I think the problem many of us probably can identify with, is when we think of this, this idea of being a restful people, is that quite honestly, most of us probably can't relate to it. Right? If you got kids, you know, when was the last time you took a nap? You know what I'm saying? Like it's hard. It is hard in the world, even without kids, with career and academics and, and all that we can fill our lives with. We are tempted to find our identity and to wrap it up in our productivity or in our activity, right? This oftentimes does not describe our lives currently. Second point, it's the priority of rest. What the good news of the gospel is, is that we learn that, the, that this rest is a possibility. There's a possibility of finding this true rest. Augustine famously said that God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they rest in God. So the restlessness that we all identify with in some way, shape, or form, Augustine says, until you take that restlessness and put yourself in God, you will not experience true rest. Not just does he point out the promise of true rest, but he also shows us that this restlessness is it's good news for us because we can all identify on some level with what it means to be restless. I can't think of a better way to describe our culture today. We're suffering in our day from what happens naturally when you strip away meaning and when you strip away purpose. When you take away meaning and purpose from life, then we are left to create it for ourselves, right? And to discover it for ourselves. I mean, think about the pressure that places on folks. What is the purpose and the meaning of your life, right? Uh, we are tempted then to, to find it in our things like our profession. What is our job, right? When some of you are in the process right now of, of maybe determining what kind of job do you want and you, you feel that pressure. Maybe some of you are in a career. Maybe you've been in it for a while and maybe things aren't quite going as you had hoped they would be. And you feel like, okay, I'm in this position where if I give up this or if I move on, I lose to some degree a certain understanding of who I am, my identity, Maybe you find meaning and purpose primarily in relationships. Well, 
that can be difficult too because anybody who's had any kind of relationship, who's lived in relationship, whether it's family or friends or colleagues or classmates, knows that relationships are not easy business, right? And they are not to be taken for granted. People come and people go. So to find meaning and purpose in somebody that is external to you, that is in relationship with you, that's, that's a lot of pressure. What if that person fails you? Or maybe it's social status, things like money, right? The kind of clothes that you wear, the material possessions that you use to fill your life. Well, those are things that can come and go as well, right? Folks, when we don't have an inherent understanding of the purpose and the meaning of life, the natural result is we become restless. We become restless. And God understands this. That's why he gave us a seventh day. Um, there's a, a book that I've been helping out just with. Um, it's a wonderful quote, and I just can't say it any better. So I'm going to read it because it really gets to the heart of what, of what this point is making. This is uh, Henry Blocker. He's a, uh, a theologian who's done a lot of work on the, uh, Genesis. This book is called In the Beginning. He says, the narrative has two peaks. This is really helpful for me because when I think of the narrative of the creation story, I often think of the, the one peak is the, the making man in God's image. His argument is it actually has two peaks, mankind and the Sabbath. This would be better expressed by saying that the creation of mankind crowns the work, but the Sabbath is its supreme goal. Now, what is the meaning of the Sabbath that was given to Israel? It relativizes the works of mankind, the contents of the six working days. Listen to this. It protects mankind from total absorption by the task of subduing the earth. It anticipates the distortion which makes work the sum and purpose of human life. Folks, that's our tendency. Our tendency is to be so consumed with the material world that in order to get more of it, it just requires us to work more. And the natural result of that is exhaustion. It's total exhaustion. And it informs mankind that he will not fulfill his humanity in his relation to the world, which he is transforming, but only when he raises his eyes above in the blessed holy hour of communion with the creator. Folks, the seventh day is what it's all about, right? That's what eternity with God looks like forever. It's why we were created, to know God and to enjoy God for all of eternity. This is the essence of mankind. See, it's not work. One of the reasons why in Exodus 20, God calls his people in the Ten Commandments to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy is, is because it reminds them of why they're there. Because our true satisfaction is only found in God himself, in the place of his presence and experiencing his total rest. In his presence is the only place that you will know true rest. It's not found in our work or in our consumption, not even in our leisure. The only cure for our restlessness is to be with God. 
Sabbath keeping is not simply rest from production. It regular is a regular rhythm that allows us to resist the pressure to find our identity and our productivity. Keeping the Sabbath serves as a regular reminder that our destiny is not determined even by what we do for God, but by receiving an invitation to be with God. And the reason that any of this rest is possible is because of a person. It's because of a person. When Jesus comes, this is the invitation he extends to all of us. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 30, he says, Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, all who are tired and exhausted and trying to find your identity in what you do, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and I am, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Essentially what Jesus is saying is, come to me, and I will give you Genesis 2, 1 through 3. He invites us into the eternal rest of the Father. And folks, the only way to experience and to know that rest is through the person of rest, Jesus himself. He is the only way. I mean, when he extends his arms on that cross and cries out, it is finished. The work has been accomplished it is an invitation for us to enter into his rest. And it is the clearest, this, the Sabbath that God gives us is the clearest sign of the gospel that you accomplish nothing and God still loves you. God still wants you. Not based on what you've done, but what, on what Jesus has finished for you. You know, if you think of the creation story, I think of, you know, so much time is spent thinking about how. Did God do all of this? And that, that's a, it's good. We have a place Sunday nights as a church where we're inviting you into that conversation so we can be well-versed in sort of the different arguments, right? Because there's lots of, this is oftentimes, Genesis 1 is one of the main barriers for folks when they consider um, who God is and what he has done. Um, but when you think about the days, you know, just imagine, wouldn't it be awesome to be there at day one, right? And watch God speak light into existence or speak um separate the waters i mean imagine how awesome and and cosmic that would be to watch him on those different days to be there with him and to see how he did it to gain an understanding right well the day that god invites you to participate and watch him do his thing folks it's day seven it's day seven and it marks us as a people. Um, Wendell Berry, one of my favorite authors, wrote, um, he he's, uh, lives in sort of northeastern Kentucky, and he, he writes these, these poems. I'm not much of a poetry guy, but he is exceptional, okay? Um, he writes these poems, and he calls them Sabbaths. And what he does is practice. He has some farmland in northeastern Kentucky, and he walks his farmland every Sunday just with a pen and paper and just reflects in just silent and solitude. And he writes poem after poem after poem. Really good stuff. But I thought this, this one really embodied, um, it's a short one, really embodied kind of the concept of what we're talking about. This is just a, a brief poem. I think he wrote this in 90, 1997. This is the seventh one. There is a day when the road neither comes nor goes. And the way is not a way, but 
a place. I'll read it one more time. There is a day when the road neither comes nor goes. You think about what a road represents and the busyness and the chaos of life coming and going constantly, right? And oftentimes it feels like, will it ever slow down? Like, I just want to stop sign in the middle of my road to stop and catch my breath. There is a day when the road neither comes nor goes, and the way, it's not a way, but it is a place. Really gets to the heart of what it means to rest, right? Our rest in God, ultimately, folks, is a place. It's a place, and that place is with him in his presence. So finally, I just want to give you, so we talked about the priority, the possibility. I just want to talk briefly about the practice, right? What we should all be doing as we read Genesis 2, 1 through 3, and we see the priority of it, the possibility, maybe we've received the invitation. The next question we should be asking is, what do I do about it? How do I apply this, right? Um, this, is a, this is a tricky concept, honestly. The Pharisees didn't get it. Um, all they associated with rest was that there was no work, and they took it to the extreme, and it became legalism. Christian understanding is that God gave us the Sabbath, not strictly so that we would keep it, but he gave it to us so it would keep us. And there's a huge distinction there, right? If we think it's only been given to us so that we would keep it, the response is that naturally leads to legalism. Okay? But rather, he gives it to us. He builds it into the regular rhythm of how we should order our lives because he knows that we would do well to keep it, that by keeping it, it actually keeps us. Okay? So just a couple of points. First, Sabbath is not a reward for hard work. We don't want to view Sabbath at the end of the week as being sort of a, a wonderful reward for all the hard work that we did. Secondly, Sabbath is, is a reminder that our work will remain incomplete. When you get to the end of the week and you've worked hard, taking regular time to stop and to dedicate time to the Lord is a reminder that our work, no matter how, I mean, if there are eight days in the week, right, our work would still be incomplete, right? Sabbath is a reminder of that reality. Sabbath is also an opportunity which moves us from production to, what word do I have there? Presence. Perfect. Can't read my writing. From production to presence. Again, seeing ourselves not ultimately as producers of things, but people who practice the, the presence of the Lord. Fourthly, Sabbath reminds us that we are not God. And I think this is one of the real big ones, right? If we don't naturally build in time into our week, and it could be a day, there's also Sabbath, I mean, times throughout the, the day where we should stop, where we should be still where we should rest and we should be reminded of who God is and what our limitations are. Sabbath is a reminder that no matter how hard we work, we are not God, right? Fifthly, Sabbath, point, Sabbath points us to a deeper rest, ultimately, that we need. Sabbath is so important. Sabbath stopping, resting, intentionally building in times throughout our week where we do this, where we dedicate time to the Lord, is actually a rather life-giving thing to do. Right? And God knows that. That's why he calls us to that. When we think about how do we practice, I want you to intentionally think about moving away from thinking of recreation and think primarily to restoration. Okay? Sabbath is not just going out and having fun. Sabbath is not Netflix and chill. Everybody hear me? That is not Sabbath. All right? I'm not saying Netflix and chill is like from the devil. All right? Netflix and chill with your hubby or whatever, you know, your family, all you want. Okay? It's okay. But it ain't Sabbath. Sabbath. 
It is not Sabbath. Remember, Sabbath is a time that God has, has declared his. He has blessed it and declared it as holy. Okay? So it is a time where we want to be, I mean, it's why we gather on Sunday mornings together with God's people. Right? It's why oftentimes you think of traditions like having a meal afterwards as a family, enjoying good food, the creation that God has made. Right? Going for long walks. Right? Spending quality time with folks, enjoying God's creation, good food, taking a nap, right? Reminding ourselves that no matter how fast we go, we will never be God. And that we are primarily a people of rest. So my question to you this morning is, is this something you are practicing? Do you think that God loves you and wants you because you are a producer of things? Because you are active, even in ministry. I'm telling you, even in ministry, oftentimes, if you are somebody who serves regularly in ministry, this can be an area of slippery slope. Because you want to give to, you want to do for, but what God says is, I want to be with. Sabbath. I mean, can you imagine that? He wants you with him. Not based on what you can offer, because you can't offer much. I'm just being honest. I can't offer much either. Okay? He wants us to be with him so bad that he's given us a day of the week where he says, you and me. You in my presence. It's what we need. And until we prioritize that and practice that regularly, the truth is we will be a restless people. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much that you... My goodness, you know exactly what we need. And I don't know why we fool ourselves sometimes to think that we know better. Um, But as we just even, some of us maybe tonight is an opportunity where we look ahead at our week. Maybe we plan our calendar with our family and our vocation, um, with our friends, or even at church. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we do that. That you would help us just ask the question, are we practicing Sabbath rest? Are we entering into and practicing the rest of the Father? Lord, we thank you that you invite us to that rest, to know true rest, Lord. And I pray, Lord, I pray that as we, that we'll be a people who are marked by it. And as we are, Father, I pray that you would help us see that, that you gave it to us, not as a law or a box that we check. But Lord, you gave it to us because you know what's best for us. You ask us to keep it because you know in doing so, it will keep us. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.